Our gospel lesson and sermon text uh, is from Mark 4, beginning in verse 35. Hear the gospel of God. On the same day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care? That we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea Obey him. Thus far, the reading of God's word, the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord. Help us to hear it, understand it, and do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Today's sermon is sort of a <clears throat> sort of a transition of some things that we've been considering and some things that we are going a bridge, I should say, between some things we've been considering and some things that we will consider in our in the sermon series on John. We'll continue talking about what it means to go to God, to cast our cares on him, to go to him in prayer. And also we're going to talk today about who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Who can this be? The disciples asked that even the wind and the sea obey him. That's the question that brings our gospel lesson and sermon text to its end. Who can this be? Who can this man be? That the forces of nature obey him. Who is Jesus? Who's this man? Who is this guy? That's the question that Mark as well as the other gospel writers are answering. The opening chapters of Mark provide clues about who Jesus is. The stories about his authority and his power point to the divine nature of Jesus. If you're reading through the book of Mark, by the time you get to chapter 4, you've already seen indications that Jesus is more than a mere man. Seems to be doing things that only God does or can do. For example, in Mark 2, Jesus heals the paralyzed man who was lowered down to Jesus. You remember, through the roof, they scraped the roof and made a hole. Great story. And these men, these four men are carrying this paralytic. And they lower him. But do you remember what happens? First, Mark 2, 5 says, when Jesus saw their faith, 
Notice the corporate faith here, not just the paralytic's faith, but their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who does this man, this guy, think he is? In our sermon text this morning, at the very end of Mark 4, Mark 4, Mark, Mark once again is providing clues about the identity of Jesus. And he even helps us at the end. After he rebukes the wind and sea, and then rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith, he provides a question that we're supposed to be asking and answering ourselves. We're supposed to begin to know the answer to this question. That's why he leaves this, he ends this story with this provocative question. It's unanswered explicitly. He doesn't provide the answer outright. The fear, the fear-filled question of the disciples hangs suspended over the story, leaving us, the reader, to supply the correct answer. And for any reader who is well-versed in Israel's scriptures, the Old Testament, there can be only one possible answer to the question. Only the Lord, only the God of Israel has the power to command the wind and to subdue the chaotic forces of the created world. Wind and sea are not known for their obedience. They are rogue creatures in the universe. They obey no one except the God who created them. And so what does this mean about Jesus? If the wind and sea obey no one but God, then why are they obeying Jesus? It must mean that Jesus is God. Our sermon text is primarily really about who Jesus is. Mark is identifying Jesus as Yahweh, Israel's God, the creator of heaven and earth. And in this story, we hear echoes of the Old Testament. They're, they're kind of resonating in the background. And that's what I picked uh, uh, sermon. I picked uh, scripture readings today that have some of those echoes. One of the most vivid echoes comes from Psalm 107 that we prayed together responsively. I'll read verses 23 to 32. It's in your bulletin, but you can listen as I read verses 26, actually, to 32. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. Okay. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wits end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distress. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they, the storm, the wind, the sea, are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. So you can hear the echoes of Psalm 107 in our gospel lesson at the end of Mark chapter 4. And 
Psalm 107, verse 28 says they, they cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And the Lord brings them out of their distress. Well, in our passage in Mark 4, the disciples are crying out to Jesus in their trouble. And Jesus, the Lord, brings them out of their distress. Jesus is doing in Mark 4 what the Lord is doing in Psalm 107. Do you see that? Psalm 107, 29, the next verse says that the Lord calms the storm so that the waves are still. Well, in Mark 4, Jesus calms the storm and he says to the waves, be still. In Psalm 107, 29, Yahweh is calming and stilling. In Mark 4, Jesus is calming and stilling. Jesus' mastery over the wind and the waves demonstrates that he has the power, the authority, that the Old Testament ascribes to God alone. In the Old Testament, God alone subdued the waters and formed the dry land. In the Old Testament, it is God alone who parted the sea and made dry land appear. It is God alone who starts and stops windstorms. Who then is this man, Jesus? Who can this be? It must be God, Yahweh in the flesh. But there's more going on here in Mark 4. There's another layer, Old Testament background kind of layer to this story in Mark 4. To see what it is, we need to go back about 800 years before the story happened to the time of Jonah. And about 760 B.C., God called the prophet Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh to preach. Nineveh was the capital city of the empire, the Assyrian empire. They, they were wicked people. The capital city of Nineveh was at the center of this wickedness. But God was about to give Nineveh repentance, mercy. And he was going to use his prophet Jonah bring about Nineveh's repentance. Now, Jonah, Jonah was an Israelite prophet. He lived in the northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel was also very wicked. All the kings in the northern kingdom of Israel were evil, were wicked, were rebellious against God. From, from Jeroboam, on down. No one obeyed God. The northern kingdom was full of idolatry and immorality of every kind. Jonah knew that his own country deserved God's judgment. And as a prophet, he knew God's judgment was likely not far off. And so when God told Jonah to leave Israel and to take his message of repentance, to the Gentiles, to the Assyrians, Jonah did not want to go. Jonah did not want God to extend his mercy to Gentiles in Nineveh. He didn't want God to give them repentance. 
Jonah only wanted God to give Israel repentance, to restore Israel. He didn't want these pagans receiving God's mercy that Israel needed first. And so Jonah refused to go to Nineveh. He told God no. He got on a ship and he headed in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And you know the story. We, we looked at it a few minutes ago. Jonah gets on the ship, goes to sleep. God sends a storm that gets worse and worse. The sailors awaken Jonah, rebuke him for sleeping, and then they ultimately throw him overboard. And the storm stops, as he said it would. Great fish swallows Jonah eventually. And, but when they threw him over, these sailors who previously they feared what? The storm. The text that we read says that they are now fearing God, Yahweh, the Lord. That's the story of Jonah 1. Well, our passage at the end of Mark 4 is sort of a retelling of Jonah 1, but with a twist, with some important differences. Jesus is not just a new Jonah. He's a, he's a greater Jonah, an obedient Jonah. Jonah, unlike Jonah, Jesus wants to take his message of repentance, the message of the kingdom, to the Gentiles. Whereas Jonah was disobeying God when, when he was crossing this sea, Jesus crosses the sea in this boat and heads into Gentile territory in obedience to God's will. Okay, Jonah's going away from the Gentiles on the sea. Jesus is going toward the Gentiles on the sea. So that's the major difference. But consider the similarities, which kind of, in a way, highlight that difference. Here are some similarities. Number one, both Jonah and Jesus are supposed to go to Gentile territories to preach the kingdom of God. Jonah to Nineveh, Jesus to the eastern shore, which is Gentile territory. If you look at the beginning of Mark 5, you find that Jesus is sailing into the country of the Gadarenes, which were Gentiles. This is where Jesus drives out the demons who enter into the pigs. Pigs lived in Gentile territory because they were unclean to Jews. So whereas Jonah refused to take the gospel to the Gentiles, Jesus willingly sails to the Gentiles. Number two, in each story, a storm arises suddenly and the people on the boat fear for their lives. But the prophet remains asleep in each case. Both Jonah and Jesus are sleeping when the storm comes suddenly upon their boats and, and everyone around them is panicking. And then number three, in each story, the prophet is awakened, not by the storm, but by the sailors with a sharp rebuke. Both Jonah and Jesus are awakened and the sailors don't understand how in the world they can be sleeping. And then number four, each story ends with the storm calmed, with peace restored by Yahweh. And with the men in the boat fearing Yahweh. That's the most important parallel. Each story ends with the storm calmed, peace restored, and the men in the boat fearing the one true God, Yahweh. 
In the Jonah 1 story, the men on the boat end up fearing Yahweh. In the Mark 4 story, that's clear in Jonah 1. In the Mark 4 story, the men on the boat end up fearing who? Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh. Another way that Mark 4 identifies Jesus as God incarnate. There's another difference between the two stories. God sends the storm to Jonah's ship because of Jonah's disobedience, right? Uh, Jonah knows exactly why this storm has come. No secret to him. And then when we, when we get to the end of the story, it's no secret to us. Yeah, he's right, because it stops after he's overboard. But that's not why God sends the storm to Jesus' ship. At least, it's not because Jesus was disobedient, right? Jesus was sinless. He never disobeyed God. And yet, Jesus still has to face this storm like the one Jonah faced. And this reminds us, this difference, important difference, reminds us of an important truth, important scriptural truth. God sends storms on the righteous and the unrighteous. He gives us a certain amount of grace to the righteous and the unrighteous, but he also sends storms to the unrighteous and the righteous. God gives difficult providences to faithful people as well as to unfaithful people. God sends hardships both to his disobedient sons and daughters and his obedient sons and daughters. Sometimes God puts you through difficulties to turn you away from sin. It's true. Other times he does it simply because he wants you to become a more mature Christian. Maybe both sometimes. Whichever is the case, there are three things that you need to know and remember and believe during these storms, about these storms. Number one, the storm is being sent to you personally by a personal God. Sent personally by God to you. Difficult circumstances are not the result of the random forces of nature. Number two, the storm is not out of God's control. And number three, the storm is for your good. It's to build you up in your character. Each storm in your life, each difficult circumstance that you go through is an opportunity for you to grow in Christian maturity. That doesn't mean that when you remember that, that the suffering will be less. But you will know that God, you will remember that God is behind it personally. And that it's for your good. Now, what is the disciples' response to this storm that God sends? Verse 38 says that they woke up Jesus and said to him, Teacher, don't you care? Don't you care that we're dying? We're perishing? What do we make of that kind of a question that the disciples ask? Well, from one angle, at least one angle, 
this question sounds a lot like the prayers that we see throughout the Bible. Especially in the book of Psalms, if we just look at the words themselves, we see this kind of prayer in the Old Testament. Psalm 44, 23, the psalmist is in the midst of calamity and he cries out to God, awake, telling God to wake up. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. It appears to the psalmist that God is sleeping on the job. Now, he knows that he's not. But this is still an inspired prayer. But it appears that God doesn't care about his people's suffering. That it appears that he's not going to come through. Why are you sleeping, God? Wake up. It's time. The Bible is full of these kind, this kind of prayer. Uh, maybe a prayer of faith-filled desperation. Not despair. But faith-filled desperation. Let me read ten of them to you. You don't have to turn to these, but just listen as I read short prayers from the Old Testament about God hiding himself and not doing what we really think he should be doing and what we're asking him to do right away. Job thirteen twenty four. why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Psalm 10, 1, why do you stand far off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 35, 17, Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. Psalm 44, 24, why do you hide your face and forget our affliction, and our oppression? Psalm 90, 90, uh, 79.5, how long, O oh Lord, will you be angry forever? Psalm 88.14, O oh Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? Psalm 89.46, how long, O oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Lamentations 5.20, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so long? Habakkuk 1.2, how long, O oh Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? Now, there's two ways to pray these kinds of words, right? I mean, you, you can pray these words without faith, without casting yourself and trusting yourself into God, with God. But there's a way to pray these faithfully, to be faith-filled. God gives us these prayers in Scripture because he knows that there will be times that we will need them. And how does he know we will need them? Because he intends to put us in situations in which we will feel like God has forgotten us. The evidence, we're looking at the evidence and our limited finite capacity to interpret the evidence, it just seems that way. Storms are not accidents. They are personally sent by God. And so he plans to put us in these situations. You see, disciples, followers of Jesus are not made in the classroom alone, through teaching and preaching alone. Disciples are made in the eye of the storm, at the center of the storm. Discipleship is not just about learning the teachings of Jesus. It's about going through the storms 
with Jesus next to you and you trusting Jesus the whole way. With Jesus in your boat, as it were. Disciples are not made only in reading books or even in the sanctuary, as central as this is. They are made in the fire and in the storm. The only way you can get to know Jesus the way that he wants you to get to know him at the depth that he desires for you to know him is by weathering the storms that he sends you with him right next to you. And so you can be sure of this because God loves you, because he wants you to know him more deeply than you do right now. Because of that, he has every intention. He has every intention of sending you hardships that make it seem as though he has rejected your soul or he's sleeping on the job. Maybe even hidden his face from you. If you feel this way, it's normal. It's to be expected. It happens. It's part of your training. God knows that it would happen. Because your father wants to see you mature as his son, as his daughter, he will put you through difficulties. Difficulties that make you feel in your chest, in your heart, that God is standing far off and hiding from your troubles. And so part of what he's training you to do in those moments, maybe in those seasons of life, is to call out to him in faith, in spite of how you feel, and to know with certainty that God is with you, that he is in control, and that he is personally involved in this for your good. You see, here's the thing. God never actually is standing afar off. He never actually hides his face from you or your troubles. He never forgets you. He never goes to sleep. He, never, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. He never forsakes you. He forsook Jesus. He abandoned Jesus on the cross for a time so that he doesn't forsake or abandon you. He's always with you. He's always closer to you than you can even really imagine or actually believe, conceive. But he does send you through the valley of the shadow of death. He does send storms your way. And during those times, it will feel as though he's not hearing and that he doesn't care. That he's not concerned about your grief. That he's not listening to your prayers. In these situations, you must resolve to walk by faith instead of by sight. Instead of by the evidence. Instead of by what you're seeing or feeling, perceiving in your heart. That's the goal of the training, right? The goal of the training is to walk by faith instead of by the sight and your, your limited, finite ability to make sense of the evidence. Faith is being certain of what you hope for, certain of what your eyes can't see, certain of what you cannot feel, Faith is trusting God's word over your rationale and 
your feelings. But trusting God's word also includes expressing your feelings to God. Expressing that the fact that you just can't make sense of it. Using the language that God has given to you in scripture to do it. You see, God doesn't leave you to figure out on your own how to do this, how to express it, what to do with those feelings. In his word, he has given you the words to pray when you feel this way. He provides you with the hard questions to ask him. And he can handle those hard questions, can't he? He's got answers to all of them, though he might not always let you in on the answer in your time. But you can be sure of this. When you do cry out to him, he meets your broken heart and your crushed spirit, as the psalmist said. And he meets them where they are. And he acknowledges the pain and the darkness are real. And then he restores you to peace. But here's the deal. Jesus may not always calm the storm or still the waves that are all around you that are on the outside of your heart. He may not always change the external circumstances. He may not pull you out of that valley of the shadow of death. At least not right away. But when you call out to him, even even with weak faith, when you ask him those questions that he has given you to ask him in faith, praying God's word back to him, then God's peace will reign on the inside of your heart. Jesus will give you peace in the midst of the storm so that you can, in your own heart, be still and know that he is God. That's always available to you. And the words of Psalm 62 will become your words. My soul waits in silence for God alone. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Wait in silence for God alone, O my soul, for my hope is from him. The key is that you must pray, as James 1 said, that we read, with faith, believing. Now, if if weak faith is all you've got, Start there and ask for more. Jesus meets you there. He does all the time in the Gospels. Remember the prayer, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's a legitimate prayer too, and God answers it. It's another prayer that God has given you to pray to him when that's exactly how you feel. I believe. I want to believe. I do believe. But as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of things that I don't believe. Help my unbelief. I trust you, help my lack of trust. Your cry for help must be the cry of one who is entrusting himself or herself to the Lord, to Yahweh, to Jesus. And so when you question God, you must do it as one who is resolved to keep looking to Jesus, the author of and completer of your faith no matter what. No matter how he responds to your prayer, no matter matter what he does, 
and response or doesn't do. It's okay to come to God with honest complaints that flow from a broken heart and a crushed spirit. But you do need to strive to come with a pure heart and a poor spirit. Poor spirit knows its lack of wisdom, its lack of of God-like knowledge and wisdom. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. If you're brokenhearted and crushed in spirit, the Lord is near to you. That's his promise from this psalm. See how this God acknowledges, yes, there are people who are brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. It's not a problem to be there. It's not... It's not good. Yes, it's because of the fall, because of sin. But God acknowledges that you're going to be there and he gives you a way to express your brokenheartedness. He's near you even when you can't feel it in those situations. Psalm 73, 1, truly God is good to those who are pure in heart. But this story in Mark 4 is not primarily about us. It's about Jesus, and really it's about the cross. We need to see the cross here, even in this story. In Jonah 1, the storm climaxed in Jonah's being thrown overboard. Story that we read this morning. Chapters 1 and then verse, and then chapter 2, we didn't read, but in chapters 1 and 2, he, Jonah undergoes a symbolic death and resurrection. Now, some some Scholars have said maybe even a literal death and resurrection. Maybe he really died. I'm sure we can go that far with assurance. But at the very least, it's if, if you look at his prayer, he is crying out from Sheol. He, he went to Sheol and back, at least symbolically. In Mark 4, the storm doesn't kill Jesus. But we know if we've read the story at least once before, we know that a greater calamity is coming. And this greater calamity will, in fact, kill Jesus. It will destroy him. On the cross, Jesus will endure the storm of God's wrath and judgment. You see, the cross is really the eye of the storm. The storm in Mark 4 is just a light breeze. On the cross, we see Jesus doing what? Praying the Psalms, crying out to God, asking him the hard questions that he's given us to ask. He even asks to be spared before he goes to the cross. The father says no. So we ask him, why are you forsaking me? But all of his complaints and questions were were laced with faith. They were saturated with faith. Not my will, but your will. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus shows us what it looks like to have faith, to exercise faith in the true eye of the storm. He is our example. He endured so that we can endure. He is calling us to do Nothing more than what he has already done for our sake. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that entangles so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, help us to throw off the sin that entangles us, that clings to us, and to run with endurance the race that you've given us to run. Give us your spirit so that we can look to Jesus, the one who gave us faith and the one who will bring it to completion. And give us the grace also to count it joy to endure the cross that you've set before us that you've given us to bear as we follow Jesus our Lord and our Savior in whose name we pray amen